You're listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews with experts from around the world on the latest issues affecting human rights and international humanitarian law. My name is Gabriel Stein. This week we're broadcasting from the island of Gotland in Sweden from the Almedalen Political Festival. These days it seems what was once up is down, down is up. We sat down for a wide-ranging discussion on what needs to be done to improve human rights worldwide with representatives from two leading human rights organizations, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. In this discussion, we spoke to Maya Olberg, who is policy advisor for Amnesty International, and Mons Molander, who is the Sweden and Denmark director of Human Rights Watch. Enjoy. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to uh, take steal something that I saw yesterday being done by David Isaacson mm-hmm. when he started the conversation by making people uh, in the conversation pick a card mm-hmm. and then riff on whatever is mentioned in the card. So just to switch it around a little bit. So please take a card, if you would. And then for our audience, please read out Freedom that. of speech. Oh, there we go. Oh, I start. Okay. Um, Yes, obviously, uh, a very important human right to the organization that I work for, Amnesty International. Uh, It is um, one of the the bases of our organization, um, which started with working for so-called prisoners of, of conscience, uh, and uh, Amnesty's founder, Peter Benenson, he read about two students in Portugal during the Portuguese um, uh, military dictatorship, and uh, they made a toast to freedom, and for this they ended up in jail, which made Peter Benenson very upset. And he wrote an article called The Forgotten Prisoners, uh, which turned into a campaign uh, which was very much about freedom of speech and um, uh, acting for people who had... Uh, not uh, advocated for violence, only uh, spoke in their mind, basically, and ended up in prison for it. What do you think he would have said about what's happening today? Oh, I think he would have been incredibly worried. He died a few years ago, sadly, uh, but I think uh, he would be very, very concerned about where we're going at the moment uh, and um, and everywhere, not just in in a few other countries. Um, but it's it's getting it's coming very close to home both to, to the EU and to Sweden. We'll, we'll touch on that in a second. Okay, Mons. Pick your pleasure. Far right. Oh, wow. That Far. wasn't planned, that we would have those two back-to-back. But uh, No, of course, that, that is a group that exercises uh, their, their um, freedom of expression or freedom of speech, and sometimes it's question for that, of course, and, and sometimes we had just had discussion on whether some expressions should be limited because they come from certain groups that we don't accept the message, which I think has some value to it, and it's, it's a question that needs to be discussed. Far right, um, for us, it is um, maybe more related to populism. We see populism be used by many different groups traditionally. We've seen that from all different political scales, but today it's more exploited by the by the right to mobilize uh, the public and divert attention from other urgent issues. So we see, for example, in the case of Hungary, when the right is diverting attention from the obvious corruption problems that they have in the government to instead talk about immigration, which is a problem that merely don't exist in Hungary. They don't accept any immigrants. So it's, it's more of, of a methodology to from the far right to divert attention or to uh, rally support for intolerant policies. 
It is definitely a very troublesome uh, development that we're seeing. We just had a, a debate with a number of politicians and they were all unanimously concerned, very concerned about the erosion of the democracy that we see today, the threat from far right. And what we see for Human Rights Watch is not the the the, the threat is not uh, singularly the the uh, party the existence of far right parties, but it's this uh, assimilation from traditional parties that they try to uh, be a weak copy of the far right intolerant message in order to appeal to this what seems to be a growing uh, group of of supporters, and by that uh, legitimizes actually some of the messages of intolerance, division, and hatred. So that is um, the, the way that the far right has been able to influence the mainstream politics of today is, uh, it is, it is to some extent a bigger uh, problem than, than the, the existence of these uh, far right uh, movements themselves. I think we'll get back to that too. Uh, let's do one more round of this, see where we get. Oops, got two. Can choose, can oh, I choose women. <laughs> okay, so my word is women. Uh, yes, obviously, women's rights, uh, also an area um, where there a lot has been done, but there is still a lot to do. Uh, and and this also ties into this discussion that, that we're already uh, on to, um, because women, is, uh, women as a group and feminists uh, are also a, a target of these forces who work against democracy, we hear um, women's groups and, and feminists are being described as fanatics uh, or um, extreme in, in what they're doing in, in their views, and, and uh, which the message from, from the women's rights movement is often as simple and basic as uh, that, that women to have human rights, but that in itself is is so controversial for, for some groups that uh, they get terribly um, upset and, and turn to violence. Uh, it's also an, an interesting discussion in, uh, in many countries, including Sweden, because of the recent Me Too movement, which I think has um, put even more spotlight onto the issue of, of women's rights. Uh, in, in our context, uh, which is, is very interesting and it's an interesting debate and I, I think we need to to follow that up and, and not just forget about it and, and move on. Uh, but I also think in an international context it's important to remember that there are also women fighting for, for very basic human rights, um, even the right to, to vote uh, or uh, the right to be seen as an individual in even by the law, just to, to be seen as a, as a grown person um, and not be um, decided over by a father or a brother or um, a son, even in, in some instances. So there's definitely a, a whole scale of, of issues regarding uh, women's rights uh, that, that we're working with and a lot of other organizations and, and obviously women's, women's rights activists themselves uh, are, are trying to, to tackle um, at the moment, Saudi Arabia and uh, the recent decision now to allow women to, to drive is, is one example that comes up and it, it's just happened a few weeks ago. And it's also interesting that uh, some of the women's rights activists uh, who, who have been driving this change uh, were in prison just a few mm. weeks before uh, this decision was supposed to, uh, to come into, into being. Hard to believe it's 2018. Yeah. Mm. 
last. EU. Oh, that's Miss, a complex could, issue. Yeah, this could, you could take the political part, or you could take the institutional side of it, and, and, and the institutions that are part of the EU, the courts. Or yeah, I mean, the EU is today, uh, mm, it's a wounded organization, definitely. Uh, the uh, Brexit will uh, um, um, shrink the political weight of the organization, that's undeniable. Uh, and um, because we're losing, or the EU is losing one of the top uh, or the largest countries and uh, with traditionally heavy influence on the international arena. Uh, I think that the EU is in the process of uh, uh, revisiting why the, the union was set up, working on communication, why it's important and uh, working on decisions that really has an added value for the citizens of the, of the European Union. And I think it's important to go back to that, to go back to the four freedoms and to go back to the peace project that the EU once was uh, and see that without uh, uh, the fundamental reasons why we have the union, it would be difficult to defend it. Because just saying that we have the union, that's what we're going to maintain it, is not a sustainable answer. And we've seen the movements following Brexit in other countries and uh, we even have a discussion from uh, the Sweden Democrats in Sweden of, of leaving uh, the EU. So I think that the EU traditionally becomes the target of a populist agenda, something in the horizon. This is not a national state. It's something else that wants to uh, limit the national state and that wants to take decision that um, makes us uh, or forces us to take decision that is sometimes uh, counter our own values. That's a narrative of the populist. So I think that EU becomes very easy target, and that uh, to defend that and to, to defend the freedoms that EU actually has has brought uh, will be key in order to maintain the integration project that we have. M having said that, I think that the very strong integration that happened in the 1890s, mostly driven by by the European Court actually, to uh, to erase differences between the nations and also force them to uh, come closer together, will not continue. And the stalled expansion of the European Union is, is also, I think, something we'll see for a long while. It will take a while before Turkey becomes a member. There are, of course, there are negotiations. They are not being suspended, but they are being frozen. But the, a larger union, or the ever larger union, that, that is the language of the EU statute, the EU constitution, or the, the, the treaty, uh, will, it will take a while be um, uh, before that process resumes, I think. And it's difficult to say today if more countries will leave, but there are definitely forces in Italy and maybe in Austria, and we see what happened in Hungary as well. Countries uh, have, have a strong nationalistic voice, and uh, that might, we might see similar process there too. Mm. Do you think, I'll ask this question to both of you, um, so, we, so we, Sweden has long prided itself on progressive politics, um, maybe not all the political parties, but still, and there's a perception outside of Sweden, um, and in many ways it still is uh, one of the countries that is most progressive when it comes to development cooperation and, and many other issues. Yet, there's a dark cloud rising, and you can see it here. Uh, I think everyone feels it, um, and you could have a far-right party being the number one or number two largest party in Sweden in, in two months, um, which is drastic um, compared to three years ago. So I wonder, and I've had this discussion with a few different people, and, and it's very polarizing. Do we need to target the people who are voting for the Sweden Democrats? And, and how do we target them? Or 
Do we need to ignore them and continue to do what we're doing? Do we need to convince them that human rights is the way to go and change the narrative? Or do we expect that they will go away if we just continue doing what we're doing? We are doing. Yeah. I think we can do both. I think we could do a little bit of both. One of the things that uh, we as Amnesty uh, has been saying for many years when, when we work with young people in schools um, with education um, about human rights and workshops, etc., is that every generation have to make sure that uh, they themselves um, understand human rights and it's not something that can be taken for granted but it's something that we have to keep fighting for and be aware of that that we need to defend and and I think that is even more important and maybe we have taken taken it a bit too much for granted in Sweden because we we have this this history uh, that you're talking about uh, so so that is is part of it we need to to talk about human rights, we need to uh, let people think about it and, and discuss it in, uh, we need to have that dialogue and, and that needs to be widespread within society uh, because that's that's kind of where the basis, the, the foundation of, of where uh, where the, the kind of the talk of the country will be, where the, the decisions uh, will will come from. But I also think that we we shouldn't we shouldn't give too much space at the same time to to some of these um, very um, well I, I don't know if I should call them radical but but some of these views that still aren't terribly representative um, it, it's a fine line of paying attention to them and making sure that we know that this is a problem that we need to address, but at the same time not give them so much attention that they tend to take over and we forget about all those other people who, who still believe in, in um, democratic values and in human rights and um, you know the, the basic decencies when it, it comes to um, how we treat people. So I, I think we need to do both and we need to be aware that that we are in a difficult situation but but kind of keep that balance yeah i agree i think it's important to equip uh, politicians with uh, the, the capacity to debate also difficult issues from a rights perspective we were just talking about the uh, beggars in the street that is something that uh, it must be possible for politicians to engage in that discussion they can understand that people might feel bothered by having to watch this beggar sitting outside the grocery store every day. But then they should be able to explain that that's actually a right of that person to make that decision and sit there and, and stand for that, not shy away from it and, and try to talk about something else. But uh, to equip them to have a thorough rights-based debate uh, discussion uh, of these issues because it's so important that we don't drift away from this fundamental perspective of the individual rights and that you have the right that you can exercise can actually be provoking for many people if I dress in a very strange way you might be provoked and that that's the situation we have in the country we're not going to prohibit that just because you are feeling upset so that is I think that we need to but one other thing that I also uh, think is important to uh, talk about sometimes we exaggerate the hatred 
and that of course hatred could be very provocative but it's also something that we need to accept some people express that hatred and that is something that we have to live with in society we should sometimes mobilize against it but don't over exaggerate it because we are like, fueling uh, the fires i think that the progressive sweden that we often talk about is something that everyone is proud of across the political scale and i actually believe that many of these voters they vote for something that they believe are the best for their friends and families and the close ones. So it's it's not it's not an irrational votes that we are seeing. But the thing is that it was a very inter interesting uh, survey from or report from Chatham House that comparing culture and economic affairs and saying that people were five times more afraid of a cultural change than economic change. So much more afraid of a culture change than losing a job, for example. And the thing is that that's going to happen. The culture is going to change. Inevitably, it's always has and always will. So Sweden in 10 years will not be the same as Sweden was in 10 years ago. So we're standing at the foreign, the museum of, of Gotland. And of course, this is a testament that things are constantly developing and changing. And to uh, ensure people or give them that confidence in the future, say that things will change, but you will be okay. That is one thing that I think that is central for the political narrative to say that, yes, things will change. We will not go back to the 70s, uh, but the change that's going to happen, it's going to be good. And you're going to survive that. Yeah, and I think also, because you talked about political parties, we just had a, a panel here with representatives from political parties here in Sweden, and they were all uh, unified in saying that we need to, to fight this and, and stand up for human rights. Uh, but at the same time, some of those parties, they, they have... Um, uh, they are kind of flirting with uh, with those voters, um, trying to kind of fish in those murky waters with some of their populist um, initiatives. And and I think also it's our responsibility as human rights organizations to point that out and say yes. But if you really want to stand up for human rights, uh, you will need to. Um, make some decisions that uh, just have some backbone and stand up for things that you are afraid that you may lose some voters over. Um, but but that is, you know, you, you can't just uh, have the cake and <laughs> and eat it too, uh, as we say in in Sweden. Uh, you know. What do you? Let's get into that. So let's unpack that. What do you think are some of the issues um, that they're they're scared that if they bring up they'll lose voters? I think it's different thing. I, I think what you said about uh, the people who are begging, um, mostly people from Romania and Bulgaria that come here, most of them Roma people, uh, and obviously with, with the history since the, the Second World War of, of terrible discrimination against Roma people, uh, at least I would expect people to be much more sensitive to that issue and, and not immediately say, oh, we need to get rid of these people. It's such a hassle. Uh, it's so horrible to have to see um, this poverty every day. Uh, we just want them to, to leave Sweden and go back to Romania. Um, there's so much in there. I think that's one example. But there's also, um, you know, what you said about cultural changes with the influences of, of other groups, um, people who are Muslim, for example, um, where most Swedish people would say, of course, we will stand up for the freedom of religion. We believe in, in that and we believe in human rights. Uh, but uh, do they have to wear headscarves? Um, and do they have to, um, you know, should we be reminded of the fact that they pray on Fridays? Um, you know, it's those little things, or, or they're not little, they're actually, they're very big, but, but it's, 
one thing after another and and it causes uh, the way it looks when you look at it all together it's it's pointing in a direction uh, that's that's very worrying um, so I, I think those those examples when you look at them all together is is that's where we we also have a problem with with some of our our mainstream political parties where where again that they're kind of flirting with with that group of voters or with what they believe maybe that that, that group of voters will will want yeah, I think it's it's sometimes it's a, it's a problem of being uh, having a lack of information, being uninformed, that they might feel a bit un at unease uh, when um, they have relations to the Muslim Brotherhood, for example. And Egypt says that this is a terror organization, terrorist organization, although they are an elected party and, and in power in Tunisia and other countries. And uh, so they don't have sufficient information to stand up for that decision and say, of course, we should allow this organization to act in Sweden. Of course, they should be allowed to raise some funds and, and have activities in Sweden. We have no problems with that. That's their choice. They're not banned here. But they don't dare to say that because they don't know sufficiently well what kind of organization it is. And what is, uh, what is a Wahhabist? What is a Salafist? And what is the difference between a secular and modern or a traditional conservative? And uh, I think it was very striking when, when the prime minister said that in Sweden we shake hands, mm. saying that the Swedes are like a uniform group of people shaking hands, and if you don't shake hands, you're not part of this group. And that is a narrative that, they, that the politicians tend to come back to, that we are a group. In this group, we do like this. In Sweden, we do like this, and which is extremely exclusive and saying to other people that if you want to join this group, you need to do X, Y, Z. Instead of saying that everyone is free to do whatever they want within this framework of the law. Okay, you cannot hurt other people, you cannot shoot other people, you cannot insult other people. There are definitely limits to the freedom of expression as well. But in that square, you're free to do, you can wear whatever headscarf you want, whatever color you want. And you can also choose not to uh, greet other people by uh, shaking their hand, but you can do it in another respectful way. Mm. So that's, that is something I think that is, uh, um, it is a syndrome that we're talk, uh, talking about this group. It is a way to rally support and also a way for the politicians to associate themselves with the voters. So we do this together. Everyone should be in this group. But it's very exclusive to the people that don't fit in that group. Mm. It, it's also there's a lot of talk of integration um, and, and that is an important discussion. But I think sometimes people, they're not really talking about integration. They want complete assimilation. Mm -hmm. They want people to be exactly like a Swede or what we believe a Swede is. And that's where that comes in. Mm. Mm. I wonder, moving a bit um, to the international sphere, both your organizations have done amazing work for a really long time. And now that we're talking about change and how change is rapidly accelerating on all fronts. What are you doing today? Um, and what do you need to do in the future to make an impact um, that you maybe never thought you would have to even think about five or 10 years ago? We're actually discussing uh, within the amnesty movement at the moment, uh, this, we've been calling it the politics of demonization and uh, us versus them. And, and it, it is an ongoing discussion that we're having and, and we see that we have to address this problem because it's, it's growing in, in so many places. And uh, we may have to, to do things uh, differently, um, but also we see how, how this change is, is affecting 
our amnesty colleagues and, and amnesty activists in, in other countries, we have people now um, being imprisoned, being harassed, being attacked, uh, where we need to even have very concrete um, decisions on uh, how do we save our colleagues? Do we need to help these people leave their country now? Uh, and in some cases we do. This is something that has happened before, um, but it's seemingly um, at, at the moment with a shrinking space force for civil society um, in general and, and organizations, it's something that we have to um, relate to uh, much more often and, and really be on our toes about. Uh, so, so it's an ongoing discussion, and um, uh, we we will be looking much more at discrimination. We will be looking much more at the the roots, uh, the root causes of, of these problems, and uh, it comes down to to inequality, to poverty. Um, fighting poverty um, is going to be something that we will be looking at much more economic, social, and cultural rights. Mm -hmm. Something we we have been working on that for for quite a while now. Um, but it's still something where we will have to focus even more energy uh, in the future to, to, to combat this development, I think. Is that something that you would say Amnesty is unified on, or is that a, is that a struggle still? Uh, no, I, I think it's an ongoing discussion. Mm -hmm. I think we're quite unified. We're actually having our, our global assembly this weekend. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's more a question of um, deciding what our actions will look like mm -hmm. um, more um, not I think we're unified uh, in our view that this is a problem we need to address and we need to move forward with mm -hmm. this it's just a question of how to do it uh, in the most effective way um, and, and where can where is our added value so that we can work together with with activists um, around the world and mm -hmm. which of course this is it's what we do already but but we we're, i think we're still working on um where we can best put our efforts yeah i would say that this change in the rise of populism is uh, to a large extent uh, an existential threat to the human rights movement and for us we have a theory of change that builds upon that we shame the leader for a rights abusive policy which normally leads to pressure that leads to change. But what we see today is a number of leaders that go uh, to their voters, ask for support on a rights-violating agenda. So for example, Duterte in the Philippines, he promised to be tough on, on uh, drug users. And when it comes to power, he's elected on a rights-abusive agenda and kills the uh, drug addicts. Or the, or the perceived drug addicts. Yeah, yeah, indiscriminately, without any kind of trial, without any kind of... Uh, 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 due diligence or uh, right to trial or any kind of, of, of law respecting uh, behavior. And um, for us, that is the challenge because our traditional methods of investigate, expose, change is being challenged. If people don't share our values, it's very different, difficult for us to work the way we do. So we have started to work more on mobilizing the public which is something that we haven't done that much before, but we are uh, conducting a number of campaigns, more than we've done before, uh, convincing or talking to people about what is the benefits about this change or what is the harmful effects of this legislation. And so what we seek to do is to document the harmful effects of populist politics. It could be in, in uh, UK, in Poland, in uh, uh, Austria or Hungary, 
in order to demonstrate for, for the people that these policies actually do not contribute to a better society, but they will hurt you. They will hurt the right to education, they will hurt to equal rights for all, and they will hurt uh, indiscriminately everyone, not only the, the targeted uh, group that the, the populists say that they want to uh, uh, diminish the rights for in order to safeguard the interests of the majority, because that is what we see, that often the, the arguments used is something that is uh, beneficial for the majority. It increases security for the majority, we need, to, uh, we need to take certain measures. But what we want to prove is to uh, like disclose the harmful effects of, of, of populist practices. Whether that will be effective, we don't know. We have done a number of polling, and I think it's important to see human rights a little bit like birds. You can't just ask if you like birds, but you need to be more specific. And um, if we talk about human rights, it's too vague for many people. Mm. But if you talk about LGBTQ rights, if you talk about children's rights, women's rights, you have a strong support among a majority of leader, uh, voters. But if you go to these controversial issues of uh, mainly migration is the, or sometimes you have voting rights for convicted people in the UK is a very controversial issue and some of the right to be expelled expelled from the country if you have committed crimes sometimes like that could also be controversial but I think we need to be more selective and talk about certain issues because we see that in Russia for example we are not the most popular organization among the Russians but when we publish a report on disability rights and access to public spaces they totally endorsed it and they sent it to different parts of the public administration that said this is something we should look at and actually uh, incorporate. So sometimes you can reach uh, people uh, through uh, different areas and talk a bit more narrowly about certain rights and then maybe from there you can expand it and say that this is actually part of a pattern or a, a broader system that we need to safeguard. What we saw in 93-94 with the big global conferences on, on the Beijing conference and the Cairo uh, conference on, on, on population was language used on, for example, the right to uh, safe abortion where it's not against the law. Language that can't be used in international uh, documents today because it's, it, it is too controversial. So you can see that under 25 years, we have not moved forward on the issue of women's rights. Rather, we have been fighting to maintain the status quo. Mm. So that the fact that the rights are challenged is not something new. This is something that we've been living with in many parts of the world for a long time. And I think the women's rights are one of the best examples of that. that uh, and what you need is someone like you had in that time, Gro Harlem Brundtland, a very strong woman, leader of a country that could step forward and say, we actually need this. We need it because not only that it's the right thing to do for the women, but it's also the right thing to do for the economy. And say that this will be beneficial for you if you get the women to work, if you stop discriminating in recruitment, your GMP will rise and you will have more resources and you will be able to also eradicate uh, uh, divisions in the society. I think that, that is, we need to look at what happened that time and also how the women's rights movement have worked since. Perfect, because I also wanted to talk about um, reproductive, sexual and reproductive rights specifically as, as part of women's rights, but also as um, possibly the most controversial area of women's rights, because that's also uh, an area where things have happened lately. We have uh, the decision, big decision in Ireland, which which made a lot of difference, and I think was quite unexpected, even for a lot of people in Ireland, because they didn't really know how um, how this referendum, this vote, was going to go. Uh, so that's good news. Um, but also, there are um, the issue is is up in in Poland uh, when it comes to legislation. Uh, 
Um, El Salvador is another example. We're having a, a seminar. Amnesty has a seminar here this afternoon about uh, reproductive rights um, in El Salvador, where, where women are imprisoned because they've had miscarriages and they're actually charged um, with, with murder and, and, and ending up in, in prison for maybe 30, 40 years. And also it's, it's something that uh, it happens to poor women and uh, women from minorities. This is not something that happens to rich women who have access to private hospitals where uh, the doctors and, and nurses will, will not sell them out. Um, but, but so it's, it's a problem with several layers. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very complex, but it's something that we also need to keep our eyes on and, and keep talking about because there are such strong forces working against it. Like you say, even the mentioning the word gender in the United Nations context when it, it comes to resolutions, um, even in an area with arms control, um, the arms trade treaty, there was a, a huge discussion uh, regarding whether gender-based violence should even be mentioned uh, in, in that document and where uh, several uh, Muslim countries work together with, with uh, the Vatican representation trying to, to stop even the use of the word. So it's, it's very, uh, it, it's probably the, the most controversial part of women's rights and I, I felt that it was important that we also mention that because it's, it's yet another area where we need to be vigilant. I want to thank you both so much for taking the time today and for your hard work. Um, I don't want to imagine where we'd be without your two organizations and, and your hard work. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Maya Olberry, who is policy advisor for Amnesty International, and Mons Molander, who is the Sweden and Denmark director of Human Rights Watch. Thanks for listening to On Human Rights. We'll be back soon with more interviews with experts from around the world on the latest issues affecting human rights and international humanitarian law.